Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. Wheatland family, Welcome to this edition of Cross Reference, and you might be surprised to hear my voice in these moments, but that is because I am rubbing my hands and gleefully chuckling, a maniacal chuckle, because I now am your host today, and Dr. Daniel Spanger is in the hot seat. Welcome, (laughs) Dr. Spanger. Thank you, Pastor Luke. It's weird on this side of the screen, I think. I can't tell you how much joy, 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 tis the season, how much joy uh, I have been deriving from the fact that I get to ask you all the hard questions today. Now, I don't, I don't remember when, when Keith asked me to preach, I don't remember this being part of the Yeah, contract. this you was know. it. This was it. This was the only reason we asked you to preach was so that we could put you in that seat. No, not at all. Dan, we are delighted to have you. Wheatland family, we're delighted to be together. We are going to be talking about uh, the January 2nd uh, sermon that Dan preached entitled Without an Ending, There Is No Story. Did I get that Mm. title right, Dan? I think that's right, yeah. And uh, speaking of titles, um, (laughs) yeah, as as you were preaching, I thought of a a bunch of great new titles for your sermon, but um, yeah, we won't. You only give us the good ones. Don't give us the. That's right. No, I'm just kidding. I won't get into that whole title discussion again, but no, thank you. I thought. Well, no, you know, to be fair, and I I think we talked about it that day, but I do feel the tension of having to write a good title. (laughs) Yeah, and, exactly. and this week, because we had, uh, because the office. So we share over. that. Keith does yeah. not feel the tension at all, but That's I That's really do. funny. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah, thank yeah. you Because you, you want it to be like, you want it to grab the key idea, and I... And of right. course, I had to have mine done by Monday, so yeah, I, that's, I thought that's where I was at, which I think was okay, but it, no, yeah, again, I think, it I think never lands did. right. I, I, think, I think it encapsulated it very, very well. Thank you. Um, what I want to know is, are you and Tara back on speaking terms yet? After, <laughs> no. After... <laughs> I neglected, uh, and a public apology here, I, Tara and I have joked about that incident multiple times it, with groups around yeah, the home, yeah, and I, yeah, I took that course. as license. Right. which I ought not not have done. <laughs> she reminded I, me I after the service. Yeah. I but she's a really good sport. Yeah. I don't want to say rookie mistake, but bro. Right. Now that's a rookie mistake. I get it. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me until the second service and she was done. I thought, oh no, we didn't talk about yeah. this. I actually thought, uh, 
so I sat through both sermons and I thought I saw on your face as you looked <laughs> down there at her during the second service, a distinctly different sort of posture as you were telling that story, a different, like, is this okay, Tara? I'm telling this and it's in my yeah. notes, but yeah, no. Yeah, I'm there were sure two things fun. going on. One, there was certainly that fear. And the other one is knowing how much Megan, uh, my oldest would enjoy it because uh, she's a movie person herself. Uh, so yeah, I, I had, yeah. I had conflicting emotions uh, in that moment. Yeah. Tara did not have conflicting emotions to say. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Her emotions exactly. are pretty clear, but she's a good sport. Well, she took fine. it well. She forgave me, I believe. Good. Good. You'll be coming. Um, you'll be getting me for counseling if that doesn't. Yeah, happen. we've got. Uh, would you call into the office and get yourself on the schedule here? <laughs> um, you and Tara. No. Um, but uh, I thought the sermon was really helpful, and uh, I thought I thought part of the thing that um, and we maybe at the end we'll get into where we're going. Yeah. But I thought at the beginning you described it as sort of bridging from where we've been. Uh, yeah. in Genesis to where we're, you know, hopefully going. Um, I don't know that you knew exactly, you knew we're going into Ephesians beginning yeah. of January, but yeah, I yeah. thought that this was really a helpful uh, bridge sermon to get us from what we've just been sitting through in the first 11 chapters, uh, plus actually, when you get into Abraham of Genesis, right, right. because uh, all of a sudden that, that has been a narrative and we've watched mm -hmm. the narrative change and we've watched what right. the false narrative has done to God's people. And um, when we get into Ephesians, we're going to hear Paul recrafting uh, for God's people, in a sense, a narrative, a new humanity, yeah. a new way to be human uh, as the church. And so I just thought that was helpful. So thank mm -hmm. you for that. Yeah. 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 No, I, was, I was grateful. I, I think, and I, you know, the oh, I'm not an Old Testament guy I, I struggle sometimes with old testament narrative for lots of reasons we like romans we like the new testament mm -hmm. as protestants where the doctrine gets clear and this is what paul's saying right. in romans and then but i think what you've done at, that i i really wanted to tie into was this this idea of seeing this as god telling us who we are mm -hmm. and who he is i mean let's mm -hmm. reverse the order telling us who he is and yeah. then by that telling us who we are and then i and i thought as as you look through christmas really as you as you made a point in your christmas sermons is that in, in Advent is that we're looking forward to the second coming. So in my mind, it just tied together that that the the natural skipping stone would land, you know, there in Revelation 20 or 21 to say, okay, so the story doesn't really finally make any sense for God's people until you get the final conclusion wrapped up. Um, so it right. felt like a natural fit for me. And I and I I thought what you had done from Genesis 1 through Abraham was sort of drawing out well in that direction. Yeah. Well that's I I do. I think it fit fit together hand in glove and 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 that's fantastic uh putting us setting us up for this coming sunday even as well but let's start with um something you said at the beginning of the sermon that okay. uh, yeah i think we've said it in a number of ways but i don't think it can be said too often and that is the wiring what it means to be human Right. is that we are people who have to have a story yeah. to make sense of things. Talk a little bit about that for, yeah. for me. Yeah, that's something, that's a good point. And, and that was a, that was just a, an, an intro point, but there's a lot under underlying that, just that when you, when you deal with humanity in general, and I too, psychology and sociologists would get this in a different way, but as a story, and of course I deal with it in a different way. And that is, it, it seems to me you can't find, I, I, and I'll, I'll lay this out as a challenge. I, I cannot find, in history, human being that doesn't live in a story of his or her, or someone else's making, whether that's the nation mm. state, whether mm -hmm. that's, 
Egypt and its and its and its you know polytheistic sort of construct, yeah. whether mm-hmm. it's the slaves um, who have a narrative. Every, everyone has to have one, and I and I think what what gets me in my own, and I hinted at this a little bit by um, by looking at uh, Gottschalk, but mm. but um, is is this idea that the the story making is not an accidental human. Like we just do this because it's this, it's a weird psychological thing that humans do. I, I believe, and I think scripture is clear that we tell stories because life is a story. Like mm, there's this yeah. tendency, this materialist view that somehow life accidentally produces order and meaning, and therefore we have to carve it out psychologically. And I I, I think we have to fight against that to say mm. that actually the, the constant need of humanity to tell stories is ref, reflects the fact that reality is it, that's exactly how it works. It's not just yeah. stars floating around in space and accidentally right. producing all of this as part of a complex narrative. Yeah. And it's, it, it's universal. And I, I, would, I would dare say it's not universal by accident. It's because that's what the image of God is in man. And that right. actually is what reality is. And I think, yeah. I think if we can't do that, then the redemptive story always sounds a bit artificial. Right. I don't think yeah, that's true. I think, I, I think that's true. And I think that's what sort of I felt in Genesis 1 through 11 right. yeah. is that the whole framework of, of, of that primeval history there is the story has been told wrong. And here I'm the God coming to you, my people, and right. I'm helping you to relearn the story of who right. I am and who you are and what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. The, the other thing that I find interesting about that, and again, I am no psychologist. I'm even uh, not a gifted uh, counselor per se, but in my own pastoral experience, um, people who have experienced trauma of some sort, and, mm. and I didn't come up with this myself, it's through my own reading and, and hearing from people who have found healing through difficult things, is that the first place uh, that they begin to find healing is actually being able to tell the story um, in a coherent way of how they have been harmed or hurt or broken or whether they've been sinned against by someone or their own sin. It's being able to tell that in some sort of narratival form that is like the baseline for beginning to be healed from that. And I think that's an interesting aspect too as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's just so darn, it's just so darn universal. I I tell students in class sometimes as you've never walked on grass, you've never walked underneath the sky you've always walked under some cosmic story about why the grass is there and what it means to you. It's just, and that's not something you had to do. Even infants as their mm-hmm. minds start to mm-hmm. develop are already developing some, Oh, here's where I am connecting to the adult in the room. And that's who they are. It's, it's just, it's mm-hmm. universal to, to the human soul. And therefore you won't find someone that doesn't do it. And the question then is not whether you have a story. The question is which story right. have you decided to anchor your identity into yeah. and become that's and really I, the issue. And, and I think that's sort of what was so helpful about the sermon Sunday, because one of the things, one of the points that you made early on is the context in which the revelation of Jesus Christ, John's mm. vision of Jesus, mm. the, the ancient world into which it comes. And I think that's, mm. of course, always so helpful. We're always trying to do that here at Wheatland is put right. the scriptures in the context in which they came. and you helpfully put it, laid it out for us as this is coming in the context of the perhaps the most powerful up to that point civilization 
right. and certainly the most sophisticated in a number of areas civilization that had ever um, amassed power and 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 put things and that is of course Rome and right. Right. and I, I thought one of the really helpful things that you brought out was all of this is happening this this ending of the story, uh, as you put it, um, where mm. new heavens and new earth and uh, all things being made new and old things passing away, all of that is coming to people who are living through an incredibly powerful counter-narrative to what John right. is writing, and that's the right. Roman culture. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, we we forget that the, the, the Christian at the time is not really just in a singular individual. I think as evangelicals, we do this, you know, religion comes to an individual decision of what's best for me. And that's really not true. We, we already think in these narratives that we've been told, and then those narratives are going to collide with this narrative of Noah, God is a creator and he is holy and our sin. And quite frankly, it's not a compelling narrative. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really not because, right. it, because it's a creational narrative. It's not just me. And it's hard to look. And I think we all do this, right? You look mm -hmm. around, you see Rome, and you say, there's no way this makes any sense. If he was a god, he'd say something. He'd do something. Yeah, he'd fight yeah. Rome, right? And this right, is what the Jews right. kept asking. Like, if you're a god, do something yeah. about Even right to Jesus on the cross. Finally, if you, if you save yourself, then I'll, I'll, I'll grant that you're probably the main character in this whole story. But otherwise, you look like just a criminal on the outskirts of a small little Jewish community. There's no way this makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And for the young Christians who have to believe Christ, follow him in the church, while the narrative around them is so compelling and so assertive, must have, I mean, it's the work of the spirit that they held on to this little narrative somehow. And, yeah, and quite yeah. frankly, looking back, it's the far more powerful story, mm -hmm. which, which is shocking. You know, I think right. Rome, no, no one in Rome would have believed that. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that, of course, and I think this was your point all along, and the point for which you sort of opened up the context is that this is actually an incredibly powerful touch point that we have with right. the narrative that John is telling. And, and, and while he's telling it in a different context, it is as powerful and as essential for us right. as it was for the fledgling church in those right. moments. Right. Um, because isn't that I mean, wouldn't, and I know you, and we've had these discussions in a hundred <laughs> other conversations, but the whole point is we are living in a time with very powerful uh, competing narratives that yeah. seem like they're absolutely true. And what this little ending that you've shared with us on Sunday seems to be, at least for many people, and sometimes, if I'm being honest, my own money sure. seems to be the farthest thing from the truth. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think we, we, it's, you know, you've heard this statement that the fish doesn't know the water he's, he's in. We, we, we've used that in mm -hmm. apologetics here, I think um, probably too much, but, but there is a truth in the fact that you, you know, the people at the time don't think they're dealing with a the narrative. They think they're dealing with reality. Yeah. You, you look around, you say, well, technology and cellular life and biology, we, this is all just true. So, and that's what the, that's what the modern secular say. Oh, we're not telling a narrative. We're just dealing with the science. We're just dealing with reality. But of course, everyone says that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyone in the history of the world has said that. This is mm -hmm. this is not. We have not arrived somewhere as a modern culture that is new, some plateau of objective mm -hmm. reality. 
We've got a whole story we've told about randomness and and life and meaning. And the story, quite frankly, rubs directly against the one story that's been true ever since the beginning. Uh, Michael Walsh, I'm reading his book, Red and Devil, Devil's Pleasure Palace, a Catholic look at critical theory. Um, but he, he, he really just makes fun of this idea that a story that's been so compelling for millennia that's changed lives and built nations somehow now is this weird random fiction. Like mm. all of a sudden now the Bible is this really superstitious book when for thousands mm -hmm. of years it has reanimated humanity, redrawn mm -hmm. the lines mm -hmm. of political imagination, reinvested mm -hmm. the human identity. How can mm -hmm. something for thousands of years been that effective? And all of a sudden now it's just with the snap of the fingers, like, well, that doesn't yeah. agree with the modern science. Right. I have, to, I have to think that we're in the modern world, whatever technology may do for us, have told us a really compelling story and we're believing it. And I have to yeah. say, as, as a historian, that story will also fail. Mm -hmm. like every other one has. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that grand perspective. And I think that's what's so helpful about Rome, you spent some time talking about um, Romans in the first century, trying mm -hmm. to imagine a Colosseum that's crumbled. I don't know if you exactly <laughs> put it this way, but no, that's, that's essentially good. Yeah, what like you're that. saying. You that's know, really helpful. For a, for a first century Rome, uh, a Roman trying to imagine a crumbling Colosseum and some guy in 2000s coming over and snatching a piece of it to take home and say, hey, it, <laughs> Look at what I got while I was over. Um, yeah, it, it would have been unimaginable. They could yeah, not have yeah. imagined that yeah. from the place that they, they sat. And yet here we are. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's... It, it, I like it, that angle. I didn't, no, I didn't, I actually didn't think of that angle, but I kind of wish I had, because I think that puts us in it a little better to say, how, how could you, yeah, how could you have seen the might of Rome and imagined one day this this guy picking off a piece, you know, yeah. a piece of concrete yeah. um, to this now broken skeleton um, of an empire. It really, yeah. yeah, it was unimaginable. And and I I dare say, yeah, that's where we are now. I mean, yeah. we we can't imagine yeah. this all ending. Oh, but it certainly will. And I think this leads me into uh, what you were doing um, when you talked about sort of mixing up subplots yeah, yeah. with the actual main narrative of, yeah, yeah. of the world. And um, so I thought we could spend a little time sort of digging around that idea sure. of subplots and, and how they work in a narrative. Um, yeah. Because it, I think you weren't saying that subplots are fiction. You were saying um, that subplots exist. Yeah. Rome existed. I mean, you you saw it. You were there. It wasn't a fiction. And yet there was something that got substituted along the way. Yeah. That meant that within that subplot of Roman power and Roman progress and 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 all that made Rome Rome, um, something got fictionalized. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you were thinking when you started doing this idea of subplots and how they function in in relationship to the one story and the ending right. that you talked about at the end. That's a that's a great question. And I, I would say probably one of my more frustrating parts of the sermon was communicating that in my mind. It's always you get this idea where the, you go, oh, I see these things and then you mm. can't put it into words. And I and then I, I, I realized have no idea what you're talking about, Dan. Just so you know, I can <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, anytime you've only got a half hour or something to explain yeah. something. Um, 
but and I couldn't I couldn't get my mind really I couldn't get the words out well so I'm glad you asked that because I and I had someone ask afterwards it seemed like you were saying that so I'm glad that we have a chance to clarify yeah. here I I think you're right I didn't I didn't really unpack I think how that works but in any story we know this and I was using roughly using the the Lord of the Rings um, mm -hmm. um, as the metaphor for this that the, right. the real plot the actual plot is the death of is the destruction of Mordor right I mean that's that's yeah. the actual plot and the, and actual and all of that really plays out into whatever support and makes Frodo, not Bilbo, another mistake I made in the sermon. I got called out on that one, <laughs> rightly so. Frodo oh, and yeah. Samwise. Yeah. Um, that that's actually how Mordor goes down. But the but the armies, they have to do real things. But you would think, and let, let's just explore this for a second. Let's say, mm -hmm. let's say you think the subplot is the real one. And so your training, the way you wield your sword, the way you go into battle and obey orders. Each one of these battles, the whole future of humanity is hinging on really is not the case. Mm -hmm. and it's not that it isn't important, but you've mistaken that to be the thing. Mm -hmm. So what's really funny about reading the books, and I think even in the movie, is when you get to the end of the movie and you watch the ring go in with Gollum, mm -hmm. you go back and realize, oh, those armies were important because they stalled, right? Yeah. They stalled the evil and allowed Frodo to do it, but them winning the battle actually was not the final story and mm -hmm. that i think that's what i was going what i was trying to get at was like right. the subplots like our like death these things which are only temporary earth really gives right. up her dead eventually she can't hold them yeah but that that is an important part of this but i think at the end we'll look back and go oh that wasn't even the main point and i think mm -hmm. in modern time we're always trying to avoid death and disease and, and rightly so right but at the same time that whether we die or not doesn't change the plot. The actual plot was this, this off-center character outside of Jerusalem, which was a backwater in Rome, mm -hmm. who died on a cross and the 500 people saw him raised. I mean, in the history of the world, it's a blip, but yeah. that's actually the story. Right. And then all of our subplots are really only meaningful. That they, they have their own narratives and their own, well, we have to get a job and we're trying to hold them. We mm -hmm. want to pay for our family and we want to make sure that our kids are healthy, you know, we're praying mm -hmm. for the Forbes family because we right, know that's yeah. important. And so they, they have their own narrative lines that are important, but it really only is in service ultimately to that. And I, and I think if we don't have that, and you've said it exactly right, and I didn't say that in the sermon, but I'm glad you said it. It's that the subplots become the only one, and that's when they become fiction. I, I didn't say right. it that way, but I, right. I, I kind of wish I had. Yeah, because I think what it does is it means that if you're, and, and maybe this is what you were saying, and I don't know, you can push back on this, but if you were trying to give ultimate meaning to yeah. the particular subplot, in a sense that you find yourself in, you will, you will always find yourself with some fictionalized account yeah, of that's right. reality. That's right, no, that's right. Because ultimate reality is the end of the story. Yeah. And if you're trying to find ultimate meaning in this moment that you find yourself in, right. you will be incredibly either frustrated or you will just sort of close, close the book on the final, on the, on right. the end of the story, as you've said, and just say, dude, I can't deal with the dissonance here. Right. The dissonance is too great for me to deal with the tension is too great i can't hold this ending and this moment in yeah. the subplot together so i'm gonna have to close that because this feels the most real to me yeah no i think that that's well said i think if if you you've, you've got really one or two options one to pretend there is no story and i, I yeah. dare any human being to attempt that that's not only psychologically problematic it's impossible 
Mm. You're a human being. You will, you cannot do that. You will not do it. Even the materialist has done it thoroughly. Um, So that's one option. The other option is you have to invent an ending somewhere that makes sense of it. And And so even 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 a materialist says, well, I don't believe in eternity. They've told it as the progress of humanity. Well, we're always improving. And, and if I die, it's it's part of the evolution of humanity. Mm-hmm. So still your death is meaningful. It still belongs yeah. to a larger construct. And yeah, so the and I think you're right. If you pick the wrong ending, then you're now living in this fiction. And ultimately you're going to find out that the, the ends and the pieces don't don't tie up. Yeah. Um, that's why I, w- I was using that. And I think you did it earlier on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. This idea of ending a movie. But I, I like the idea of that. Like if you yeah. if you stop then that's why I was doing my conclusion with Annie and. and yeah, Narnia. that was really like, fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and credits right there. It, it's not only that it feels incomplete. It's the rest of the story makes no sense. Yeah, it, it's illogical. I didn't follow this. I got nothing out of this. It wasn't meaningful in any way. It wasn't funny. It's not yeah. really even sad. It's just right. It's nothing. And I think yeah. that's that's what happens if we try to do that. So I like the way you say that. I think if you pick a subplot and you try to pick an ending for that in the middle of the book, you're, it's going to be there's dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um, frustration, anxiety, depression. It's that's mm-hmm. those aren't the only causes for such. Things. Right. No, you can see how they would create that. Yeah. And I think so. We've been talking a lot about story here and that sort of thing. But what when we talk about the end of the story, if you weren't in the sermon itself, we're talking about uh, Jesus being revealed to the world as right. God's true king and right. remaking the heavens and the earth and, and the earth becoming right. all that it was meant to be from the very beginning and God's people dwelling physically present with him in his new world. It's a wonderful end of the story. Um, But I think one of the things that you touched on, and maybe this was early in in the sermon, actually, was this idea of new heavens and new Mm. earth and old heavens, and which means by default that there's an old heavens and old earth. And um, you talked about the heavens as being um, the, it, it's almost like the, the um, behind the scenes power center of yeah. the world. What makes the world tick? Um, right. This place where the actual governance of the world happens. So right. when, uh, flesh that out a little bit for us, because sure. I thought that was some of, some really helpful frameworks for us, because we, we understand new earth pretty well. We, we understand Romans 8, the earth is mm. groaning, it's under bondage, we get the curse. Right. But talk a little bit about why we need a new heavens as well. Is the sun burning out and the stars <laughs> going to, you know, talk about that. The moon's bit. just not capable anymore. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, it's not the new iPhone. You know, we got, we got the moon 1.0 and one day we'll yeah. get the moon 2.0 and right. boy, won't it be bright. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the the mistake in one sense has been, and there's some cosmogony and cosmology back here that the heavens just refers to what's beyond the earth and outside it. And so, yeah. but but you, you'd see Jesus talking about Satan falling from the sky like a star. That's not just a, a beautiful pictorial metaphor. It's because in that thinking, and I think this is the reality, is that the the stars are considered. And we, we if let's let's use a really bad example in astrology. That is the stars that actually govern the way things happen here sure. and the stars aligning. That's a really bad version right. of the truth, which right. is that there is a power behind this unseen 
that mm -hmm. actually is the structure that is making nations great, um, right. giving power. I, I did in the Sunday school on Ephesians, because you, you mentioned that Paul does this a bit in Ephesians. Yeah. That's right. Of um, the, the, the car game, Paul Pins, that, that my, my brother and I used to play. It was a very technical game in the back okay. of a station wagon on long drives where um, okay. I and Paul Pins would have to meet uh, about a business deal. And then we'd always take the wrong road to see each other. And I could never find Paul Pins. And we were always finding some way that we would never meet. And this is all okay. played out in the back of a station wagon. Very complex game for five and, 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 and uh, seven-year-olds. But, <laughs> but what, I, what I was saying is that that game is our lives. But what makes that life work is that there's a car, there's a driver, there's a road, there's exits, mm. there's police. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the car is our lives in this world. They're meaningful, important lives. We're, we're doing things that are meaningful. But what makes that feasible is all the structure around it that actually works on it, plays on it, gives the structure and the power to it. So the U.S. government, the, 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 the Pennsylvanian government, that's yeah. all the heavens while we're in the car trying to make our game function well. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and I think I, I hope that's helpful because I think when 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 Jesus is talking about new heavens, he's talking about the governmental structures, what Paul called the principalities mm -hmm. and powers in Ephesians 6, right. those things. He's allowing to govern for now, sort of like if mm -hmm. you know that 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 um, discussion between Satan and God around Job, you mm -hmm. know, where God mm -hmm. allows Satan to manage things around Job for whatever mm -hmm. reason. That mm -hmm. kind of management system, at some point, God will replace. He'll reveal that he's been the king all along, and all mm -hmm. of that will dissipate, and his structure will be put back in place right. around us. So, I think that you know, we in order to really appreciate that, we got to get out of our modern sense that's that real is seen and seen is real right the church is the church has never believed that yeah, until yeah. recent time right um, it's not even rational to think that way right but yeah. that's the way we've been trained in this modern story and that's mm -hmm. just not the truth there yeah. there is a heavens and it's mm -hmm. very real right yeah yeah and i think that's such a helpful way to allow us to wrestle with the reality of evil yeah. In a different way than perhaps us moderns have yeah. wrestled with it. It, it. It's very different way, as you've already pointed out, than the way the ancients wrestled with yeah. the problem of evil. Because what you're saying is that behind the, and, and of course, this is when we talk about the, the, our accuser and, and Satan right. and, and right. the devil, and these are all ways of talking about this power structure that lies behind the power structures. Right. Um, and I think this is an incredibly helpful way for us to begin to talk about even the problem of evil. Right. Because what we're seeing now is it's, yeah, it is structures that are evil and, and systems sure. that, that work in very evil ways, but even behind those, there is something that keeps pressing every new structure, right. no matter how good we make, we try to make it, no matter how um, clever we try to be in, in whether it's governments or systems or, or institutions, there is something that is always pressing those right. off towards decline, decay, um, oppression, sin, right. however you want to say it. And what is it that lies behind that. And, right. and that's the thing that until that gets shaken and replaced, right. that's going to be our experience. I, I find that incredibly helpful way to think. Yeah, about that, I think that's I think that's well said. I, I think that that's something we need to re and 
reinvigorate our theological thinking and our perspective with because it was very it's very common to Paul and mm-hmm. you know from there back you know and even even I say for the medieval church right up until the post enlightenment yeah. that's how everyone understood that was the reality we we now think that the cause for everything is a seen cause so right. so we're looking for the root cause of crime in genetics or right. in brain cells and we'll explore that ad infinitum and won't find it because even once you correct all of that there's still something else that's as you say pressing on working on Mm-hmm. And that is an oldness, and it will never be repaired until it becomes a newness. Yeah, and it, and it and it and it does put us in an awkward spot. It's not that we don't live out these subplots really importantly. We don't fight for justice in our communities and societies. Not, and I bring this up with Jesus. Jesus, it seems, and and we have to take him seriously. Could have fixed all of the injustices in this world without replacing the heavens if he wanted to. He had right. Satan offered it to him. Right. Here, yeah, here, that was a here. great example, by the way. Yeah. yeah here's it all. Yeah, but if you but it, but Jesus said no, I, I'm going to live by the word of God, and therefore I'm not yeah. going to do it this way. Yeah, which, which means that we can fight for those things as well and ought to, but our ultimate hope has to be in the fact that this will only be resolved when the heavens are replaced. And I and I do think the newness is a revealing. I don't think God's mm. ever not been in control. Right, but right. there will be a revealing that He is, mm-hmm. and even the even the powers, principalities, and powers that think they're in control will finally realize, oh, we're not. And, yeah. and that's when they are, that's when they're tossed into the second death. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's interesting. Now I know you have a real, you, you love movies, but <laughs> I do. <laughs> you, you, you have a caveat. You're not a horror movie guy. No, no. And, I draw the line. And I will say I have been, uh, I've been there at, at, at earlier in the way I felt about horror movies, but my tune okay. has begun to change a little bit. I want to offer, uh, something that uh, the director, Scott Derrickson, who's actually a Christian okay. filmmaker. Okay. Uh, he's done stuff on the Marvel movies. I don't know which ones. I'm not that much of a savant in movie stuff, but he directed this horror film called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And okay. um, again, I'm not, I don't know what your tastes are, people <laughs> out there, Wheatland family. I don't know what your tastes are. I know something about Luke. You may not want to know. This, but um what I found interesting about his reason for making horror films as a Christian, he says, and I, and I won't get this quotation right, I'll, I'll butcher it like I do everything, but he said something to the effect of, you know, trying to prove God is over. I'm, I'm, I'm done trying to prove God to people, but if I can show them evil, what will they do with that? And, and, and that's, a, I, I think, I'm not, again, I don't think this redeems the horror genre en masse. Sure. I think there's some really crass and awful stuff out there. But I, I think what Scott Derrickson, at his best, is trying to do in some of his horror films, and, and I have in my head is The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I've seen a couple of times, Um he is trying to say, what are you going to, okay, so you don't believe in God, but what if I confront you with this undeniable existence of evil, then what will you do with that? And I think that's just, again, that's an interesting apologetic approach. And I'm not saying you have to take that and go out and become a fan of horror flicks, but it's a, it, it, there is this reality that we all know at the end of the day. Right. That is behind this. There is we, we can't deny the presence of evil in our world. We can deny a lot about God. We can deny a lot, but it is hard for us right. to deny 
the real presence of evil that is actually unexplainable right. in right. many ways. No, and I think this is what Lewis and Tolkien were so important for us as modern Christians. You know, I don't think they would have been necessary in the medieval time when 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 the world was already mm-hmm. a mysterious um sort of it was only part of the stage of a much larger narrow much larger play that was going on the physical world was just one small part now we think this part of the universe has taken over everything else yeah i think lewis and tolkien and others are so helpful in in saying you've missed it if you really want to understand humanity and evil and good you have to see the powers that actually lie behind that and when you when you do and i I think there's a freeing that comes from it um there Mm -hmm. also is i think a better appreciation of what god is doing yeah. He's not just fixing causal things so that diseases go away now. He right. And I, I think one of the students says class, if that's true, or no, we guess we said in Calvin, if that's true, then suffering and disease and death are actually the things God uses for this much larger story that he is calling us through the way he called himself through it in his own death. Mm-hmm. That that wasn't just a, a linear narrative. He, he was yeah. playing into this. He was he was making fun and ridiculing these principalities and powers we don't even see that Paul's getting at. There's right. all of this government back there. And, and for some reason, and one day we'll learn it and we'll go, wow, he just made fun of that entire universe of structure yeah. by his death and then calls us to die also as somehow a victory lap in, yeah. <laughs> in our Lord Christ, a victory yeah. lap into that great story, um, which I think yeah. just gives us a much, much more moment than, than yeah. we often give ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think sort of all of this talk about powers behind the powers and and real evil i think that is actually something that i don't know if it's uniquely christian but that is a real strength of the christian story is that it never shies away from the reality of evil it doesn't try to dismiss or water it down or soften it we we have um the reality of the world that we, the reality of the world that we live in and that we have experienced is always given account for it. I'm not saying we can explain it perfectly, but we never shy away from it or refuse to give an account for it. And that that's a powerful thing. So if um, I guess we have to wrap this up at some point, but um, I think one of the things that your sermon was so helpful to do was bring us back to really face this ending of the story that mm. what we're longing for is actually what, what the end of the story provides in Jesus returning to earth with a new heavens and a new earth and him being installed as God kings and all the pretend powers that we talked about um, actually um, being put down and he is his triumph over death being revealed finally and fully to the world as the great triumph over evil itself. That is the end of the story. And, and you bring us back to that to see it so clearly. How does that help us now? Yeah. In yeah. this time where we are living in a neo-Roman empire in a sense how does how does the end of the story then come into the places of of our own individual subplots uh that we're feeling the tension of um where what are where does it come and, and i'm thinking about this is a valuable thing that your sermon did for me is bring me back to the places that i am really 
pulled at by these subplots mm -hmm. that I want to make mm -hmm. ultimate. And um, how does this ending of the story serve us in the middle yeah. of this tension? That's a good question. And, I, and here's something that, that I think has dawned on me over the last couple of years, because, you know, we're, we grew up in this eschatology sort of milieu where we're pre-millennial, post-millennial, mm -hmm. millennial, And all of those things seem to say that this is just the waiting game. Mm -hmm. And we just sort of sit around, do what we have to do. And either this gets really bad and he saves us out of it, or this gets really good eventually. And all that really says is the future serves the future. In other words, mm -hmm. when we get there... Yeah then we'll find it'll finally be over. But I, what right. struck me as I've been doing a lot more reading in the medievals and the ancients is that for them, the end is so impactful now, like it makes this meaningful. It's not just a wait. And it, I mean, it is waiting. And I know that's mm -hmm. been a part of our own yeah. work here, which has right. been important. It is waiting for the resolution. But right. the fact that it's resolved that way now changes everything about how I function now. And yeah. the way that we take things is meaningful. And that, if you, if you, um, if you take a book you've really enjoyed, once you've read it through, go back and reread it. And, and I dare say what will happen is things you've never seen in the book before will jump out at you. Hmm. It, it takes the ending to see that. Mm -hmm. It's not that the ending is right. just the place where the type is stopped and when, shoo, I've hit my page count, I got to be done now. And so we just sort yeah. of ride it out until the end, which is how I think Christians often think about this. Mm -hmm. But actually, once you know what that ending is, everything back in the story takes on a whole new light. You right. can use, if you want to use movies, we can use Sixth Sense for that, right? Those mm -hmm. who have seen the Sixth Sense, if you haven't by now, too bad, spoiler alert. Yeah, right. Um, it's 20-some years old. Yeah. But the, but the point is, when you watch that movie and you realize that he's been dead the whole time, mm -hmm. you go back. I went back and had to rewatch it. I was like, yeah. oh, I didn't realize that was going on. Yeah. So here's the beauty that we have, is we actually have the ending by God's grace, mm -hmm. and we're going through the story at the same time. Yeah. And I think then we get to actually say, oh, this looks different to me now because mm -hmm. I know where this is all headed and ending. And I think of the martyrs, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm not answering the other part of your question here, but yeah. get to that in a second. But I think yeah. the martyrs, what, what always impresses us about them is they saw what they were going through in light of that. They, they mm -hmm. didn't just be like, well, I don't know what else to do. This is over. They saw somehow the glory of the end of this. Like Paul says, I don't even consider mm -hmm. now the sufferings of this day compared to the glories that are to come. Mm -hmm. But that actually reinformed what they saw as valuable. The little things they do now mattered because of that. So I think that's one thing I want to say is that we need to think of this a little differently, like, like I think the pre-moderns had done, and that is the yeah. ending is the meaning of all of the parts. And so it yeah. changes the way we live now. The second yeah. question you asked is probably the harder one to answer, and that is, and you said it well, how, how, how do we avoid turning our subplots into fictions? And, I, and you, you've used the triad, whether in this recording or before, sex, power, um, and money and money right yeah as those things which very easily become and they're all important plots they all play yeah, very important yeah roles exactly lives. right and that's not that they don't but when they become the plot then they become fictional yeah. and I, I mean we all do this so what, whatever our particular particular sin is we all do it um we do it at work we do it even even in family and i think probably christians yeah. even do it with really good things you've seen right pastors and ministry leaders do this with their own ministries they say mm. God, now this is my ministry is the thing that's happening yeah, and it yeah. becomes an abusive arrangement. They don't treat right. their families well. They don't actually treat their ministries well. Yeah, but yeah. if they can see, as, as we can all see, what God's given us as good things, mm -hmm. as good because, good because they are players in that wonderful plot that's being played out. Yeah. And I think these things become even more meaningful. 
Yeah. Because it's not just a job that you know, and this is what the writer Ecclesiastes says, job's going to go away, my family's going to die, everything's going to be over. Yes, that's right. true. But if you saw them all as leading to the great plot, would they become more valuable to you mm. be, and, and balanced as so yeah. because they're not no longer that the main plot itself? Yeah, I think that's so helpful. And I, I, I you know, when you talk about money, sex and power, like we have lived with and, and, and of course, it, it's just ahead of me. I was born in 1976, back in the old days. Now you're a young buck. Yeah. And um, so I was born after the sexual revolution, in a sense. Maybe I was born. No, I won't get into that. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, but since, you know, let's say the 1960s and the sexual revolution, we have lived long enough now to know that what we were being told, and by we, I'm extending right. that to my older siblings and, and, sure. and generation above me, but we have lived long enough now to see, to reap the harvest of yeah. brokenness that the sexual revolution, like dogs run free, why not me? That was a real, it felt like a really liberating thing. I'm, I'm talking about subplots now that get turned into fiction here. Right, yeah. Um, we've lived long enough to see that the, that narrative of sexual revolution, and I, I understand that it was reacting against oppressive. I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not trying to get into the critiques that, yeah, there was stuff that was really wrong in the way that the early 20th century was projecting uh, ideologies about sex. That that's all fine. But the answer that was given in the sexual mm -hmm. revolution, we've seen, we're reaping the harm of it in in our own world today we're we're reaping this uh the fruit of this idea that sex is just sex let's if, if i could just be general with it just to say that sex is just sex it's just mere pleasure we know now that it's it's far more than that yeah. we know that it has far reaching implicate for families many many people have grown up without a mother or a father in, in one sense yeah. and, and we know the sadness that that uh that has been anyway all that to say when we when we have lived through that we still it seems keep coming back to say even though we know this is the fruit of it hmm. we keep coming back to say but this is what we want yeah and, and I think it's the end of the story that we have to continually come back to to help yeah, us yeah. fight against, even though we, I mean, like, this is a situation where it's not just a powerful narrative. Mm. This, the, the, this, let's call it the sexual revolution, is a powerful narrative that by all intents and purposes, we know it's a defunct story, right? Nobody yeah. believes the story anymore, but we keep... <laughs> Re repeating it and and thinking this is what we want so it's this is where the end of the story has yeah. to, we have to keep coming back to it and saying actually there's something in what jesus has done in history and what he said about human sexuality and then what the end of the story actually looks like that has to bring us back to transform and it's only in 
telling where everything's going that will help us fight that really powerful subplot or, yeah. or fiction. Let's call this is a subplot that's become fiction. Yeah. Um, anyway, no, I, I think it's true. And let me let me because I only only dabbled in this on both sermons. I just I just threw it mm -hmm. out. But I this might be a helpful tool. It's been helpful for me as a historian. Is that um, there's ways, there's ways to understand what the plot is. That there, there's ways you can do that. First of all, you can connect ideas. And sometimes people come out and say, here's the plot. The other, the other way to do it is to track the villains and the heroes. Because really, once you know the final plot, you reevaluate who is the hero and who is the villain. We, yeah. we do this, we do this all the time. And history is always doing this. History is always reevaluating. I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years, Jefferson was a hero. Now he's a villain. Why? Because our plots changed. And we mm -hmm. what what the point of human history was about liberty and a republic in a dangerous world now has become about freedom and individualism and equality. And now Jefferson's a villain. And I, and I think with the sexual revolution, one of the reasons that became so poignant is because the villains, i.e. the previous generation that were telling us how to live, they were the new Hitlers of a new era mm -hmm. who were trying to moralize everything and make you do what they want to do because a particular story had been told and that then made morality the villain an individual expression is the hero, which prior to the 60s, it was inverted in that regard. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I would say, I would say, as you listen in your own culture and you listen to your heart and where it's going, use the, use the way that you start to identify who the villain and the hero is to help track back, wait a minute, if that's the villain, what's the ultimate plot? And, and I think when you do that, the way our culture's done it is you'll find that the plot itself is not very compelling. It's not mm -hmm. nearly as compelling as the villainy is. <laughs> right, you want right, to call right. you want to call someone evil because they've done something. That's compelling. We hate that person. But step back and go, why do we? What what plot line is this? And if the sexual revolution or sexual freedom is the plot, well, that, as you say, that's not very compelling. But I don't like someone to tell someone else it, and destroy their individuality and their individual expression. Okay, if that's the villain, if that's a villainy. Step back and ask, what's the plot in all of that? Mm -hmm. And I think what, what scripture is always telling us to do is to evaluate that according to yeah. God, number one, but according to also the story he's telling, yeah. which makes really weird people heroes and villains in the scripture. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. The non-powerful, the weak, the, yeah. the, the, the outcast become yeah. Mary, a, a virgin right. who's pregnant, be becomes somehow the hero. Like right. that just doesn't... Yeah. Oh, if that's the hero. Oh, so obedience and loyalty. That's that's mm -hmm. heroism. That's the plot. Right. And then you change. So I, yeah. I do. I think you're right. I think there's a tendency in that regard. And I would say probably where this touches me the most is where my tendency is, is to is to start labeling villains and heroes, not realizing I've already taken on a subplot. I've already mm -hmm. I've already committed myself to it without mm -hmm. even knowing it. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's you said this before. One of the reasons I love coming to church on a Sunday morning is it challenges yeah. me to re-see the story of what God is doing. And then I go back and go, crap, that's not the bad guy. Right. Dang yeah. It. And, and, uh, and <laughs> that's not the good guy. And the point I think that we are trying to um, make week in and week out is that we are people who are always getting the story wrong as well. Um, and that is, I, I, I think, how do we invite people into this story like what what we've just done i think is a very helpful critique and a helpful yeah. diagnosis of the situation i i think this is patently true about the situation and the way in which we get the story wrong and our culture gets the story wrong but what we're doing on sundays is we are becoming this community together 
who each week are coming back to hear the end of the story again and say, oh, shoot, <laughs> like you said, I, I think this week I may have lived like 100% for this subplot and found that my meaning in this subplot rather than in the end of the story, Lord, forgive me, heal me, restore me, right. um, remind me. And, and, and I think that's the beauty of what we're doing in our worship each week. Mm -hmm. And that's the necessity of this community who is giving its loyalty and its allegiance as the church to the end of the story. And are we going to make mistakes? Absolutely. Are we going to find ourselves falling off of, off of the narrative into sort of backwaters of subplots that become, yes, we're going to. And I think that's another thing is as a community, how can we be honest with one another right. yeah. and say, Friends, none of us are above getting this wrong. Let's be honest and let's yeah. keep this ending of the story at the center of our life so that this becomes the thing in which we critique ourselves right. and measure ourselves by and not some other thing. And, and I think that's, to me, that's my, my whole um, hope and dream for us as a church community is that we are becoming this and again, I didn't come up with this, but this is what I long for us to be, what I long for myself and my family to be, is in the middle of a world that is so mesmerized by other stories, is that mm. we are living out something that is so much richer and more real, that as we begin to tell the story in the way that we live with each other, in the way that we preach and teach and welcome sinners and find forgiveness and all of that, that other people are drawn to that in, in undeniable ways in their own hearts. And we yeah, don't know. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, if you look at Jesus, we say he was a great storyteller because he is, he is, he is the point of the whole story. And, it, yeah. and, and, you know, it, what, what happens is something sometimes less exciting and more deserty following, mm. following God and Yahweh through rubble. But, but the story itself rings true. It, it makes sense of humanity. It, yeah. it, it, and, and, and we don't live with death a lot now. It's very rare. Even with COVID, mm. it's still very rare. But, but for, for Christians who had, and for human beings had to live one and still do in this, in this world where death is higher Without this story, life is 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 meaningless, and and I think we've just some of these fictions become compelling because we put blinders on and we say, well, as long yeah. as I can get this to work in my life and I can get this job and this money and this yeah. retirement, this that somehow I've I've solved it. And I and I would encourage everyone if you really want to get a good sense of our story, go back and read Ecclesiastes. Really spend time in it, mm. and and it really just makes a wreck of every other story option out yeah. there. And, and I, I cling yeah. to Ecclesiastes because it's yeah. dead on right. Mm. It's absolute common sense. Yeah. Um, and it wrecks every other story. And you come back and yeah. go, well, then love God, because that's the only story that makes sense of the rest of this at all. Yeah. And I think um, I just want to say thank you for bringing us back to the end of the story mm. on Sunday. And mm. that is was such a, a useful and um, central thing to our life here as a church family. So Thank thanks, you. Dan, for your work. And I look forward to, uh, so where, Dan, where do we go from here? Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> where I go from here is I go from, I go to sitting in the pew for the next. Oh, uh, the roles get reversed again. Um, so yeah, I thought just uh, by way of wrapping up here today, I would say that we are going into Ephesians 
And I know you taught a class on, and I've been listening. I wasn't able to sit in your class because I've been in another class, but um, uh, I've been uh, listening to your uh, lectures online from that class. And I hope to um, get to spend more time uh, over the weeks than what you were able to do. But I am really excited about, first of all, this idea of the ending being the story as a bridge out of Genesis and Mm -hmm. the way... Mm -hmm we got the story wrong into Ephesians mm. where God is creating a new humanity who mm-hmm. as the church, who will live the story out differently because they have this ending. And I'm excited about how all that will play out, but that's, that's where we're going. Ephesians, uh, a new humanity is. What, do you, what are any, any key themes we're to look for in the next sermon or so? Um, on on Sunday, I'm I'm going to be in Ephesians one, just one and two, and um, just sort of setting up. I'm going to be borrowing some of the stuff that you you did on Ephesus and okay. sort of the context of that, and setting setting the setting the uh, context for us a little bit about who this was written to, why this is a unique letter of Paul's. This is mm-hmm. Ephesians, as you know, is a very different letter of Paul's. He's not yeah. necessarily writing to fix this. It's it's sort of like I don't know. It's the best of Paul in a sense. You've got this, you've got this incredible theology, and then the last half of it, you've got this um, making it so practical in the in the house and household and in the in the church. It's mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm excited about that. But basically, what I want to say is, Ephesians, I think, uh, is how we live in the tension between all of the subplots and and the final ending it's ephesians that teaches us that's great how to do that so that's that's why that's i exciting. loved what you did on sunday so much because it's well i'm, up I'm glad luke and, and praise god for for what he does yeah. and i look forward to getting back on the other side of this uh, yes this and, zoom call uh, and thank you for your uh, graciousness as a host yeah and thank you for uh taking the time to answer more of our questions <laughs> and uh we're so grateful for um, I, I think this has been an interesting development in the life of our, uh, the way our sermon sits in our life together as a congregation. I've been glad for it, and I know many people have expressed that to me as well. So thank you for your work on this podcast. We look yeah. forward to being with you next time on Cross Reference. Thanks, Weekend Family. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.